There are all kinds of reasons to be good stewards of our environment. Clean air, clean water, clean oceans, all are important. As Christians, we see all of these things as part of the created order. Does that mean we have a God-given responsibility to take care of the earth? Should Christians be leading the way in recycling plastic and purchasing electric cars? Let's talk about environmentalism on today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, we've asked our friends to suggest topics for discussion. Today's subject comes from one of those suggestions, so let's start in the book of Genesis. We believe our environment came from the living God. Genesis 1.28 says, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, the command is to subdue and have dominion. One might argue that this command doesn't sound all that environmentally friendly. What do you think? It's important to understand that when uh, there in Genesis 1, when God creates Adam and Eve and tells them to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, that it's a part in that context, he's creating them in his image. He's creating Adam and Eve to look like him. And because they're designed to look like him, that means that they're going to be in charge, like God is in charge, and they're going to represent him as uh, as vice regents on the world that he created. And so, whatever subdue and have dominion mean, it's designed to look like God, to, to rule over. The way that God rules over the world is by loving it and caring for it. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that God cares even for the birds and for the grass of the field. It's, he cares very much for his creation. Now, the problem comes in is because after the fall, after humans have rebelled against God and our minds and our hearts have become twisted and turned in on ourselves, the way that all of us think of you know, if when you ask when you ask us, you know, what does it mean to subdue and have dominion over? Now we don't think what. Now we don't think what does it mean to look like God? How do we love things like God loves things? What we think of is um, how can we use power to benefit ourselves? Well, you know, when I read this just now, this thought popped into my head. When we read the words subdue and have dominion, we put that into our our life context of things that oppose us, things that yeah. cause trouble, right. and they have to be pushed down. But these words were spoken at a time when there wasn't any of that in the Garden of Eden, when everything, I, I guess, would have sort of worked together, and life would be easy for Adam and Eve. Yeah. So what does have dominion and subdue mean in that context when you don't really have to expend energy holding things down? Yeah, so so to lovingly care for and to serve. And um, it's a a great, this is a great uh, topic to talk about. And and it feels to me, Chuck, like we've talked about this uh, uh, pretty often, maybe even in recent podcasts, but it's worth saying again, to, to subdue and have dominion means to lovingly serve and in in God's economy to rule over you know so sometimes people will talk about servant leadership 
And what that language of servant leadership tries to get at is, um, whether it's said by Christians or non-Christians, it's trying to get at the way that God designed leadership to work, which is if I'm in charge, that means I'm the slave of the group that I'm in charge of or the people that I'm in charge of or the, you know, the farm that I'm in charge of. It's my job to lovingly serve that. Now, like I said, it gets twisted because now we think of power as something that we use to benefit ourselves, not as power as something that I use. To be master. Yes, to, to rule over. There's nothing wrong with the words master either, as long as to, to be the master means to be the slave. And so when, when huh, Jesus... That doesn't follow. It doesn't. That's why Jesus says in, in uh, you know Mark uh, uh, 8 and uh, 10 and 12, Jesus has these conversations with his disciples where you know, they, they're talking about, like, we want to be in charge. Like, you know, God, Jesus, when you become the big boss, like, give us, like, make us in charge too. And Jesus says, okay, the way that you're thinking is, is that mastery and dominion and power mean I can rule over things and people and places and use them to benefit myself. That's the way the rest of, that's the way the fallen world works, Jesus says to them, but it's not going to be that way amongst you because Whoever will be the greatest of all must be the servant of all, and whoever's going, you know, and he says, "This is me. Uh, this is this is what I'm doing. I'm the God who created the universe." Jesus tells them, "I'm the God who makes your hearts beat every second, and yet I didn't come to be served, but to be. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many." It just kind of sounds like high religious language. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're supposed to be serving. We're supposed to be servant leaders. I mean, you know, we're not supposed to be oppressive. Don't, that's the way the world does. Don't lord it over people because that's not the way we're going to do it. But then we all do it. And I don't even think we really stop to think about what Jesus said there. It's undoable. Yeah, well, so uh, it's very difficult, that's for sure. And uh, outside of... so. It's the image of God. That's God designed us to subdue and have dominion by being loving servants of the creation. God designed us to do that. We, on our own, we chose, Adam and Eve chose way back when, and all of us have chosen, every, ever since then, all of us have chosen, nope, for, for us, we want to subdue and have dominion over the environment and over other people in order to benefit ourselves. What that means is, is if we're going to get back to the way we we're designed to be, which is to, to be servant leaders, we can't do that on our own. You're totally right. We're going to have to get back to God and God's image and how did he design us and how can I get back to the way that he designed us? And the answer to that question, how, how, can, we be, how can we act like God? How can we do the impossible and act like God? The answer is, is that God became a human and did it. Jesus did it. Jesus actually served and didn't insist on being served. He actually gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus actually subdued and had had dominion over the whole creation by lovingly submitting to everybody. I mean, he gave up his life. And if we're going to get to that point where we're able to take care of and love our families and our friends and you know whatever wherever it is that God has placed you listener in your vocation, wherever it is he's put you to be in charge. Maybe it's just you're in charge of your apartment or in charge of your front lawn. Or maybe you are you have people under you at work or you have a family. To get back to the point where you can use your authority there to lovingly serve those spaces and those people, it's got to be done through Jesus. we got to tap into who Jesus is and be connected to him to have that power. 
So it sounds like you're holding up Jesus to be an example as we contemplate what it means not to be lording it over people, but to be leading or mastering in service. Yes, example, but also I, I intentionally use the word tap into. So it's not just watch him and, and be like him. That's not, that's going to be, it's like, you know, hey, you know, watch Shohei Atani pitch Aaron and be like, just watch some YouTube videos and do what he does and then you're going to be a great pitcher. It's not the way it works. It's You just can't watch Jesus. It's true. He is an example. But to tap into him, to be connected to him by faith, to live in our baptisms, that we're united with him so that what he does, what who Jesus is, he can live that out through us. So it's not us on our own, but by being connected to him through word and sacrament by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can begin, begin to live that servant leadership life through this us. This feels to me kind of like an abstract thing we're talking about here. It, it seems to be uh, useful. It seems to be lovely, but it's out of reach because I I tap into Jesus. I look at Jesus and I say, well, here's some people who ran out of wine. Bring me some water. Here's your wine. Well, you and I will never be able to do something like that. Here's a guy who's never walked from birth. Now he walks mm-hmm. and yeah. leaps in for joy. We can't do that. What part of Jesus, I'm afraid to use the word example, what part of Jesus' example are we supposed to mimic? Yeah, so what Jesus is doing is he's, you know, feeding the hungry. He's he's problem solving to benefit other people. Feeding the hungry with a little tiny bit of food and I can't do that. Yeah, problem solving by turning water into wine, serving a a party that, he, you know. Right. Right. uh, he's raising the, he's healing people by touching them, uh, or saying the words. So, you know, what Jesus does, that's that, that he, you know, Jesus is God. And so, uh, he has that power once we're tapped into him. see, if you think about it just as an example, like, okay, so I'll, I'll just do what he does. You're not going to be able to do it, but if you're tapped into the power of Jesus, then, there are all different kinds of scenarios where Jesus can work through you. If you, if you are a Christian, if you've been baptized into Jesus, if you are one with him, uh, and if I think we maybe don't have time to talk about what that means to be united with Jesus so that you live in him and he lives in you, then what, what, what will begin to happen is that he will begin to do those things through us. It's possible that it's dramatic. It's possible that he can use Christians to, to literally – pray a prayer and heal people. It's also possible that he can use Christians the way he's done for centuries now to to build hospitals, to care medically for people, to bring people food when they're hungry by cooking it over your stove, not by taking a little piece of bread and breaking up, but going home, uh, buying some ingredients, making some food on your stove, driving to somebody's house, dropping it off by taking the money that God's blessed you with and going to the store and buying some winter coats and taking it to the homeless shelter. So in all in all those different ways, it's, it's, Jesus is an example, of course, but it's actually much more than that. He's working through us to take care of these people. And the same goes with the created order as well. God's called us to, to, to subdue it and rule over it, but he's called us to do that in the context of his image, which is Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1 says. So to do this in Jesus, it becomes possible to be Lord of the universe, to be Lord of the environment, to be Lord of my backyard, and to do it not in a way where I'm manipulating it to benefit me, but I'm actually loving and caring for it in God's name as as 
somebody who's been designed to look like him. Apparently, the voiceless creation does have something to say. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for his, meaning God, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul seems to be saying that our environment is testifying to the power and divinity of God. So how do land, sea, and sky make the case for Almighty God? Yeah, this is, uh, this is, I like this question because the answer is complicated, uh, complex, complicated, one of those two. Um, and what I mean is that there's, it's not a hard answer to understand. But what kind of person are you? You like complicated answers. I need simple answers. Yeah, well, so the answers are simple, but they're not, they're, they're, they're multidimensional. There's, there's a bunch of different angles to them. It's not just, well, here's the, let me, here's, I'll give you one sentence and that explains it. There's lots of different ways to look at this. And the, the way that we interact with nature or with, with the environment, with creation, uh, it hits us in all different kinds of ways, ways that when you stop and are honest with yourself and aren't intent on not believing in God, you will see that they make, like Paul says in one, clearly make God available, make God apparent to the observer, the one who lives within nature. So, I mean, you could do it philosophically. You can say, um, I mean, everybody kind of knows, I think that everybody agrees that there's nothing that's uncaused, that if you ask, uh, you know, where, where, where did that, uh, you know, where did that melon come from? You can say, well, from the melon vine or whatever. Do melons grow on vines? Water they melons? Do. Okay, yeah, yeah thanks. Uh, and you can say, well, where, where did that come from? Well, it came from a seed, and where did the seed come from? It came from a previous plant. And you can keep going back, and, and there's always be something that caused the thing that's happening. And you keep on going back and back and back and back, and eventually you're going to bump into the first cause. And philosophers have called that, but there's different options available to us, but philosophers, you can call that God. Now, we, so you don't, if you're a philosopher, you don't need to, you maybe not even necessarily mean a personal God. I, as a Christian, believe that there is a first cause, that there is a God. The only other alternative is, is that, you know, melons are eternal, that there's always been a melon, and that, or something that's like a melon, you know, that there's always been matter, that nothing's, yeah. that, that there is nothing uncreated. There's nothing that's, that there, there was no nothing, and now there's something. That's the alternative. But I think it's pretty clear that, that if, unless you're intent on disproving God, that, that the problems with saying that matter is eternal are far greater when the, with the problems that saying something made this. Uh, so that's one thing you could do. Um, I mean, when we look at uh, when we look at the when we look at the environment, whether it's melons or uh, people walking or uh, the way oxygen uh, provides life to creatures who need oxygen, it's clear that the universe is working. That stuff works. That um, uh, you know the Earth spins, and it provides night and day, and that when I put one foot in front of the other, and then the other foot, I can move around. That the these two appendages that I have hanging off of my torso pr- provide mobility. It's it's clear that there's I mean, there's some sort of like that things work design. That, yeah, well, work in a way that it would be surprising if they weren't designed. Work in a way that things just don't without design seem to work, unless you stack the deck and you say, well, 
you can do some circular reasoning and say, well, I know that we weren't designed. And so the fact that your legs can move you around is just random. Well, that's, that's kind of loading the deck um, in advance. I think that w- when you look at the way everything seems to work, it points to, like you say, design. I mean, there's the also, when you look at nature, it's clear. I mean, we'll talk about uh, uh, how this is in, in some ways not true, but it's fairly clear that nature is on our side. That that nature is working for us. You know, we live in the, what was the, the so-called Goldilocks zone, where you know we live. We, we have a planet where it's not too hot, not too cold. Uh, we have an atmosphere that's full of a gas that's necessary for life. We have lots and lots of water that's necessary for life as well. Uh, it rains. Stuff grows. We eat it. Uh, this is, it seems to be that the, it seems to be that somehow the universe is working on our behalf, is in some sense kind. Uh, I, I I say that's because it's been designed to be kind to us, and it's run by a God who loves us. Um, uh, that, that's I mean, you can call it Mother Nature if you want to, or you, again if you want to, you can just say it's random. But I, I think that that there's more problems with calling it random than there is with saying that there's there's something there that loves us and is trying to do good to us. Uh, the other thing too is um, there's beauty. Like what's what's up with sunsets or what's up with like how stunning canyons and mountains and rivers and prairies are. There's something about the, the environment that every single person sees and there's something that there's a feeling that you feel when you stand at the Grand Canyon that transcends just the fact that there's a hole in the ground here, <laughs> you know, it's it's bigger than that. There's something, there, there's something that's touching. There's something about seeing a newborn human being that transcends just the biological fact that this species is propagating itself. There's something beautiful about it, and and, and I think when Paul says, and, and again, you can load the deck and you can just say, well, that's all just random, you know, we, we you know who's the fine tuning argument that you know we live in a universe that's good to us. And that specifically supports life. Well, that's just random. It just happens to be the universe we're living in. Uh, you could say that, but I think to get to that point, you really have to start off with: I don't want to believe in God. I want a uh, secular explanation for existence. If you start off with that, maybe you can get to that point. But I, I think that Paul's right. It's pretty clear that there's a God, and He's on our side. So we all know that the there are struggles with within the environment. There are problems yeah. there that need somebody's attention. Suppose I were to say, man is not the problem. Lightning starts, forest fires, hurricanes, and tornadoes do enormous damage to natural th- things. Volcanoes and earthquakes rearrange the landscape. Droughts kill plants and animals. We just live in a broken world. What would you say? Well, there's two ways to talk about that. So now we're going to talk about the bad stuff, how, how maybe the environment is against us. There's two things to say about that. One is um, pretty accessible to everybody, I think. Uh, the other is specifically theological. The accessible one is I, the, the more that we understand about human impact on the planet, the more that we've come to understand that the, the, the way the environment and creation work has a lot to do with humans, and uh, maybe it's the Dust Bowl, where it's, a, it's an environmental disaster. You mentioned drought there. Um, 
I think it, we understand now that a large part of what happened, a large part of what shaped early 20th century America, demographically, uh, um, you know, economically, a lot of that has to do with bad agricultural practices. Uh, there are other factors as well, but, uh, you know, farming land uh, that shouldn't have been farmed the way it was, planting the same crop over and over until the soil is depleted of the nutrients that that crop specifically needs, stripped of its vegetation, and then it's e easily eroded, that sort of thing. You could talk about that. You could talk about, I mean, it's um, we're, we're getting better about this, but in the city that you and I live close to, St. Louis, uh, there was a famous day, and I think it was back in the 19-teens or 20s, I don't I, I don't have the facts in front of me right now, called Black Tuesday, where the smoke from the factories was so thick that it was absolutely dark at noon. And it kind of woke up the, the, the hey, we're killing ourselves. These, these, the, 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 the environmental waste that these factories are producing is destroying our city. You can talk about this. Uh, it's kind of been in the news lately. There's a, a massive island out in the Pacific Ocean made up exclusively of plastic detritus that has got into the current patterns and has formed this massive island, which is killing the life underneath of it. It's killing the animals that, that are going there to feed like they would normally do with a, a you know, with a real island. And th these are problems that, that we as humans need to, these are problems that we as humans have caused in the environment. Let, let me give you the theological response to that as well. Uh, whether it's apparent or not, it, it could be something super apparent like a big mass of plastic floating in the ocean or factories churning out black smoke. That, that's super apparent. But even the stuff that's not apparent, a tidal wave maybe, or uh, I don't know, stuff that goes wrong in the environment that we're like, you know, like uh, 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 a hailstorm. Uh, killing a, a flock of sheep or something like that. We'd be like, well, I don't know. How did humans cause that? The Bible insists that humans did. The Bible insists that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they introduced brokenness and death into the environmental structure. And whether it's a, a, a tidal wave or a hailstorm that kills some animals or cancer, that the, the, God insists this is your guys' fault. You chose to do things your way. You okay, so Adam and Eve did that. I wasn't around then. We've inherited uh, the mess that they created. Now all creation groans. Does that mean today that I should feel any sense of guilt for the floating plastic mass out in the ocean? Well, whether you feel guilt or not is probably a it's a personal choice, I guess, or maybe it has to do with what you ate for breakfast or how sensitive you are to stuff out there. Whether you feel guilt or not is not the question. The question is we are guilty. So however we That's feel about it. That's not a question. That's a statement. Yeah. So I guess, uh, yeah. Are we guilty or not? There, I turned it into a question. Answer, yes. Rhetorical question, I guess. The Bible insists we are guilty, whether we feel guilt of it or not. And it is our responsibility with God's help to do the best that we can. Now, because Jesus hasn't returned yet, we're still screwing things up and we're going to, but the Christian responsibility is to do what we can to take care of these things. Now, maybe we're going to get to this. Uh, one of the things we, we as Christians do, I think everybody does this too, is we think, okay, so how can we get rid of this many, many 
I, I think it's hundreds of square miles of plastic island in the ocean. How can we get rid of that? Well, I don't know if I'm able to do that. What I can do, though, is I can care for the world that I'm in. I can care for the environment that I'm in. I can make choices that are good for – I'm not trying – there's nothing specifically prescribed in Scripture, right? You know, the Bible doesn't say – don't put a bunch of chemicals in your yard to try and get really nice green grass. Maybe it'd be best just to plant a bunch of clover, which isn't going to look fancy, but the bees like it and it grows really well. And it's great to play on for your kids. And it's, 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 it's healthy for your kids. There's not a bunch of, the Bible doesn't say to do that, but that, that is, you know, in prayer and Bible study, it's stewardship. It's something that it's, a, and, and again, it's the Bible doesn't command it. So if somebody chooses to not plant uh, clover, it's not like I would say, well, you're violating God's will. The Bible doesn't say that. But it's it's that's a choice that somebody can make to actually take care of their yard. Not to dump trash out the window of the car while you're driving. It's just choices like this. To, 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 to maybe be more – I'm trying to be practical here. Maybe be less extravagant in our use of electricity or gasoline, these sorts of things. It's turning off lights when you're not using a room. I know so, so it's – Big deal, right? Well, these are choices that I can make to try and do my part to care for God's creation. And we're we're not even talking about people, right? Because, I mean, the question is creation. But that's another level to it is caring for others. But we can make choices that try to reflect who the image of God is in us, and especially as we are, those of us who are Christians, as we're connected to Jesus, to make choices that reflect his care for his world. There's a great debate all over the world about climate change. Some people are saying that if we don't get our environmental practices in order, that the world is going to end in the next 10 years. Is there a danger in mixing the politics of environmentalism with the theology of being good stewards of creation? Well, so sure. I mean, you didn't ask me in that question. You didn't ask me, Aaron, do you believe that climate change is man-made, human-caused? And I'm glad you didn't ask me that because I don't want to answer it. Because as soon okay, as the word, as, I won't ask you. As soon as the answer comes out of my mouth, it's politicized. It's like some people are going to be like, "Oh, I'm, man, I'm glad he's actually speaking up and saying the truth." And the other side is going to be like, "He's completely wrong." You know, he's not. He's he's just falling for the other side's rhetoric. That's the end propaganda. of the conversation. Yes, and then nobody listens. Uh, so, so I, I think it's, it's fairly clear that climate is changing. There's a lot uh, of debate about the extent to which that, that is man-made, the extent to which climate change is dangerous. I mean, I just uh, without d- dipping my toe in those waters, I would just go back and say, if if I can repeat what I just said earlier, which is whatever is wrong with the climate. I was only say a couple of things. Whatever is wrong with the climate is caused by humans. What, I'm not saying whether it's you know, climate change or tidal waves, the Bible insists it's our fault. We need to repent. We need to trust in God. We need to ask him to guide us to do things that better care for our neighbors and for our environment. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that I I realize there's a lot of fear that's built up. Like you said in there, there's a lot of fear built up around the topic of climate change. And anytime people are trying to stoke fear in you, and, and I'm not trying, I'm not picking a side here. One side is going to say, you need to be afraid because the climate is changing. And if we don't do something in 10 years, the 
planet's going to burn up. And the other side is saying, you need to be afraid because there's all these climate change fear mongers out there. And if we don't do something in 10 years, they're going to be in charge and we're not going to be able to drive our cars anymore. So both sides politically are trying to stir up fear. And anytime somebody's trying to stir up fear in you, what you do is you say, you are not working for God. You're working for the enemy. You're trying to control. You're trying to subdue and have dominion over the voters or the you know the people in the environment. And I'm not saying that, bo- that the people on both sides don't have good motives. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they're all liars. Cl- clearly, people who are on p- people who believe that climate change is man-made care about the environment. People who are concerned about that the the climate change people are concerned about people getting control over other people. So they both have, I think, they're probably good motives mixed in there. But when we as humans use fear to try to control, we're not doing what Jesus did when he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so to go back and say, I'm going to love the environment, and I'm going to love my neighbor, and I'm going to do it in Jesus's name, and I'm going to do my best, but I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid because God is sovereignly in charge of the whole shebang. And he knows when the world is going to end, uh, and, and biblically speaking, he's committed to that process. He's committed to being a part of the renewal of the age. And so, whatever happens, now I've, I'm not. I'm not. This is not abdicating responsibility. God has called us because He is a God who cares about the environment to do our best to care for the environment. But at the end of the day, He's committed to renewing all things and establishing a new creation. However he goes about that, I don't need to be afraid because I can trust that he's in charge and he loves the environment and he loves me and to let him have that. So to, to, to avoid the fear mongering on both sides of the debate, I think is very important as Christians. Do you think that God is in favor of no more fossil fuels, no more air conditioning, no more nuclear power plants? I, I don't know because he doesn't talk about that stuff in scripture. I know you don't know. Uh, what do you think? I think that God is in favor of us caring for the environment. And, and, and a lot of times what that means is, um, uh, d- 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 does God think it's sinful to, I, I don't know, to, to, to put fossil fuels in your car and drive around? I, I don't think that he, so you're asking me for my opinion. Maybe I'm very, very wrong with this. I don't think that he is. Does God think it's good for families to own multiple cars and drive everywhere. I think there's a lot of reasons why that's bad. I, I think I, I don't think it's good. And I know that we're working hard to create vehicles that don't you know don't pollute. I don't think it's good for the environment to, to do the, what we've done the past hundred years with cars. I don't think it's just bad for the environment. I think it's bad for humans period. I, and I wasn't preparing to talk about this, but I think I can although, so like I, I'm not prepared. So this is this could be very very uh, wonky here. Here we go. But but I I think it's been I think it's fairly demonstrable that the social world 150 years ago was much different and in a better way. What's happened is is we've because we've because we have cars, we don't shop where we live anymore, and we don't work where we live. We get in our cars, and uh, I know that like COVID has changed a lot of that. Many of us work exactly where we live now. But in general, this is what suburbia is, right? You have this car, and so if I need to go to church or if I need to go shopping or my kids are going to go to school or I need to go to work, I drive somewhere that's not right where I live, and I'm disconnected from my community. 
And so what we have in suburbia is um, just typically people don't really know their neighbors. They might know them by name, but I, I don't need my neighbors. If I want to, you know, if I, if I want some groceries, I don't have to go to the, the grocer on the corner. I can drive across town to the big supermarket. Well, you know that high fences make for good neighbors. You know that, right? Well, yeah, Robert Frost says that, and uh, there's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which it betrays the brokenness of the world that we would need fences in order to be good neighbors. But but yeah, there's all sorts of ramifications of this, right? I mean, um, my my the people who sell me groceries now aren't people who know me and care about me and know what kind of groceries I need and want. It's big. I go, I go to the Walmarts of the world. I go to the Targets of the world. I go to the mega church if I want to go to church. I go to these places where the people there don't really know me and aren't invested in me. We've paid a price for that, haven't We've we? We've paid a price for that. And Pretty serious price, I think. Yeah, this is a little bit off topic, I guess. But I don't know if automobiles have been good for us. But I don't think that they're evil. I, I think that, you know, is nuclear power bad or good? What does God think? I don't think it's that simple. I think that many parts of Europe, for instance, have discovered that nuclear power is much cleaner than than coal power, which is the, the common power that we use, but it's also much more dangerous. So there's a trade-off there. And anytime there's a sort of trade-off, it's going to take wisdom. There's not an easy answer. And so um, God wants us to care for the environment. And I don't think that, that means that we just sit inside and we don't step on the grass because we might murder an ant. But I do think it means being judicious and being temperate and being able to use what he's given us, but in a way that serves those things. Like So, so trees, do, do we want to wipe out forest of trees? No, that would be bad. That would be using the forest to benefit ourselves and not love and serve that forest. But can we chop down wood to build houses, but do it in a way that loves and serves you know, the global tree population? Absolutely. Of course we can. And I think that's probably what God wants for us is probably in that area there. I guess what I've – I think what I've learned here in this conversation today is that whether it's on a, a large scale or a small scale, every day we face choices. It, come, it comes whether you're expecting it or not, and here's a choice. Should I throw my uh, plastic cup out the window here into the ditch or should I not do it? Some of those choices are bigger and require a little bit more thought. Some of them are just small, like not throwing your cigarette out the window and starting a, a grass fire. Right. But those choices come every day. Yeah. And we make choices. Perhaps we should think about somebody besides ourselves when we're exercising the freedom yeah. to make that choice. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and think about think about the environment. It's so it's you know could, could I. So, so the house that I live in, um, it's an old house, over 100 years old. Um, I, I found out recently through my, my town's historical society that up until the 1960s, for about 30 years, the guy who owned the house um, had a, a car repair shop in the backyard. And it's where it's a big metal shed back there. there. It's not there anymore. It's just grass now, but big metal shed. And people would come there. And I, for a long, I said grass, but I, for a long time when I got there, like wondered why won't anything grow back here except nasty stuff. I've planted seeds. Uh, you know, I, what I should have done is I probably should have taken a soil sample and taken it to the local, you know, extension office to find out what's going on. But when, when somebody t told me, oh yeah, that's, he just repaired cars and there's how, how many gallons of motor oil is in that. Uh, 
you know that 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 sort of thing. It's as an American, I could say, well, it's it's my yard, you know. I'm not it's, it's I'm not dumping oil in anybody else's yard. This is my yard. No, as a Christian, I say, no, it's God's yard. I have a responsibility to God's creation to care for it and not to destroy it just because it's my property. And I think as Christians, that's what we need to get back to, whether we're loving and serving other people or making choices, like you say, about how to take care of God's world. We need to circle back all the time in our brains and in our hearts, and you can only do this by the power of God's word, to circle back to the question, this all belongs to God. My family belongs to God. My backyard belongs to God. How does he want me to love and serve it? So those two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, it sounds to me like those are, I don't know if the right word is fulfilled, but uh, that's the right direction, yeah. which would motivate us to take care of our environment. I, exactly. I think that's a good way to say it. All right. Thanks for the conversation, and thank you for spending some time with us here on Craving Answers, Craving God. And thanks for the questions that you have shared with us. If you enjoy our podcast, please tell your friends about us. And keep those questions coming. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rathard for Craving Answers, Craving God.